0: Thank you to everybody for coming tonight. It's, um, it's always good to see you at these, at these events because I think we get a lot of interesting things said by our guests. We range over a, a vast array of subjects and you might wonder where food comes into it. But, um, and I just wanted to read one sentence that Jean wrote in her preface to the show. She says, the designer, fashion guru, architect, filmmaker, photographer and chef have become the creative researchers of our time, which is, I think, fascinating. I wouldn't have thought, I mean, I wouldn't have at first blush put food or cooking or chefing or whatever amongst it. But there's a beautiful link between Adam Liao and what you've seen in this uh exhibition, this wonderful installation, and that is that Adam's lived in Japan for quite a number of years, and so the whole Japanese aesthetic, Japanese food, Japanese art and design has become part of the background to his life. How Do you still live there, or did Masterchef no, put an end in, to that? Yeah,
1: unfortunately, <laughs> Masterchef put an end to that, so I moved to Sydney in November of last year, so I've been in Sydney almost one year
0: now. How long were you in Japan?
1: Uh, seven and a bit. So
0: does that give you a sense of not being as much of an outsider as you must have felt at the beginning? It's a difficult thing in Japan, you know, you have
1: people that have lived in Japan for 20, 30 years and and they still get asked, uh, you know, where did you learn to use chopsticks? And how come you can speak Japanese? And it's it's a very insular society, one of the only developed societies in the world, I think, that, that is so insular that I have friends in Japan who are who have Korean parents, Korean in the sense that they are ethnically Korean that were born in Japan, and then their children were born in Japan, so they've lived in Japan for three generations, and they're still considered Korean. Um, so it's very difficult to not be an outsider in Japan. I mean, I look fairly Japanese, and I can speak Japanese, and so I don't get it as overtly as someone with blonde hair and blue eyes might, but um, I think there are a lot of people that will not accept a, a foreign influence as being intrinsically Japanese mm. within Japan.
0: Mm. What were you doing in Japan? What job were you doing?
1: I was a lawyer. Um, I started off working for uh, the Walt Disney Company there in, in one of their divisions. And then um, uh, by the time I left, I was, I was responsible for uh, Asia Pacific and then the head office for Disney... Um, throughout Asia is based in Japan because that's where they had the first um, theme park outside the US. In the, in the '70s, they licensed Tokyo Disneyland and, and uh, the, the base of operations basically up until 2005 for Disney was was in Japan for,
0: for mm. all of Asia. Yeah, and it's huge. I mean it's, it's enormous. It's yeah. amazing. I don't know if any, if any of you have been to the parks. I've never been to Disneyland in the States. So when I was in Tokyo, a friend of mine who works at Disney, took me to the park, there's two and side by side. There's the Disneyland and Disney Seas, so there's the sort of water theme. And yeah. it was really funny because they've recreated things like the Grand Canal in Va- Venice, down to the last detail, except it's very small, but they've got gondolas with Japanese gondoliers, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, looks very, it looks very odd. Yeah, I, I, I have to admit, when I went to first start working for, for Disney, I was not a fan of Disneyland, but after, after going there, multiple times. It, it totally changed my perspective on it. You know, so it's that sus- suspension of disbelief where you can go somewhere and, and everything is okay. You know, you don't have to worry about your life, you don't have to worry about what you're eating, where you're going. Mm-hmm. You, you know that you're not in Venice but but you're happy just to be experiencing it. it it's yeah. a, a
0: fantastic. And Japanese place. boys and girls of eighteen and nineteen love it. I mean it's
1: not oh, just oh, no, it's no, not even eighteen or nineteen. The statistics on the park are forty um, percent children. And, and uh, 60% over 20.
0: it's very, uh, very interesting. the mm. park. So, if we if we think of this this time that you were there, were you into food in a big way at the same time as you were being a lawyer?
1: I, I was. You know, I've been I've been into food for a, a very very long time. <laughs> I remember um, dishes that I cooked back from when I was eight or nine years old, and and not just the dishes that I cooked, but why I cooked them. You know, I, I'd read. An asterix comic and see a roast obelix eating a roast boar and think that looks so delicious. I wonder how he makes that. And then going and making my own kind of glaze that I that I thought looked like the glaze in the asterisk comic and trying that on on pork and chicken and things like that when I was mm-hmm. about eight or nine. But I think moving to Japan um, changed the way I approach food out of necessity, and um, I think we can all get get caught in that cycle of going to the supermarket, the same supermarket all, every week and buying the same things and, and cooking roughly the same things and I think the statistics are that the average household in Australia cooks four dishes and that's, that doesn't even get you through a working week, it, it, it is quite extraordinary. Um, but then when I, when I moved to Japan it was a whole different supermarket, a whole different style of eating, a whole different availability of ingredients and, and the interesting thing about Japanese supermarkets, as compared to Australian, is in Australian supermarkets we have everything, and, and as the seasons vary, the prices vary, and that's that's basically it. you don't go to a supermarket and and expect not to be able to find tomatoes or not to be able to find apples, even if they are out of season. But in a Japanese supermarket, by and large, even in the very big commercial supermarkets, they just do not have things that are out of season. Um, increasingly, like everywhere in the world, they're starting to to have you know, winter asparagus or autumn asparagus, but but uh, that is not the norm. People will buy spring asparagus as a rule. And I remember once when I was um, at, at, a, at an end of year function, they got all of the, the senior executives for Disney, of which I was one, up on stage. And, and being an American company, um, there was, I think, one Japanese executive and, and six, Americans and one Australian being myself, and um, it, it was basically this, uh, taking the fun of this, taking, taking fun of, making fun of the senior management, and they were asking questions about you know Japanese culture and language, and and one person asked you know what is what's your favourite winter fish, and the Japanese guy said oh you know yellowtail or booty in Japanese, and and um, nobody else really could name a winter fish, and even the concept of having fish. Seasonal fish was totally alien to most of us that were, at, were from outside Japan. Mm. But it was such common knowledge uh, to everyone there that it was, it was hilariously funny that no one could name a fish that <laughs> came winter. And I think if, if we all thought now, nah, we'd be hard pressed to name more than two or three.
0: Japanese, do Japanese eat out a lot or do they cook at home a lot?
1: They do eat out a lot. Um, there's a, there's a bigger movement towards home cooking in Japan at the moment, and one of the most popular books in Japan is, is, uh, is basically called Men's Food, I, would, I guess I would translate it as, uh, and it's by a guy called Kentaro. And he, his cookbooks are all the dishes that people like to eat. I mean, the Japanese cuisine is incredibly varied, but like in Australia, um, the dishes that are very popular are, are very few and people like Goya Champuri, you know, stir-fried bitter gourd and uh, from Okinawa, or um, taco rice, again, from Okinawa. I have kind of an Okinawan food bent yeah. so at the moment, so I'm just thinking of lot of those dishes. But um, he basically just puts those dishes into the simplest form, and that's by far the biggest selling cookbook in Japan. Um, but the thing about eating out in Japan is that there is good quality food at any level. You can go out for very, very expensive Three four hundred dollar sushi meals, or kaiseki meals, or you can go out for what's called one coin meals because in Japan you have a five hundred yen coin, which is probably worth about six or seven Australian dollars, and, and you can go out for a meal that costs you one coin, mm. and almost without variation, the quality is extraordinary. You know, you, I have I I can almost say, with the exception of maybe one or two, I have not had a bad meal in Japan, eating out or eating at home. Really? Yeah.
0: Tell me a little bit more about kaiseki. That's the, is this, a, this is a traditional way of eating, is it? It is, it
1: is. Um, kaiseki is something that developed back in, in antiquity that was basically a, a set meal or a meal in progression and it's developed over the years. When it first started, kaiseki was what you would now in Japan call a set and it contained probably rice, miso soup, pickles, and a main dish, and that was what made up a meal.
0: And miso soup, whenever I've done that, it's always had miso soup as being one of the fixtures. Yes. And rice. Those seem to be the two. Then it varies around those two central core things, is that right?
1: Yeah. Um, Kaiseki, I think, from that set uh, has now evolved into something that's a much more high-end, has a much more high-end connotation to it, and now it's usually... A very set and ordered meal of maybe 13 or 14 different courses and it's really quite beautiful in a way because the courses tell a story you know you could have one course that is from the rivers and then the next course that follows is from the mountains and then it's from the sea and then it sort of interplays the the, the style of cooking together with the choice of ingredients together with obviously the, the visual aspect of it and Japanese cuisine is something that is extremely visual and not visual in a sense of I like this or I don't like this, but often elements on a Japanese plate are intended to signify something. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've ordered sashimi in a restaurant, you've probably seen it. It comes on some some daikon behind it and then some some smaller pieces of uh, various Japanese herbs in in front or or sometimes they put a little green leaf or something in front of it and, and that actually has quite... A meaning. It's almost like a landscape where the, the mound behind the sashimi, which is called suna, which can be made of various different things, um, signifies a mountain and then foliage in the foreground. And, and, you know, it's not literal. This is not... We're not trying to make a, it look like a landscape here, but it does have meaning. and It does have an aesthetic element to it that, that really does impact on the appreciation of the food.
0: Yeah. Is it... Um... Is there regionalism in, I mean, do you, does the food up north different from the food in the south, for instance?
1: Huge, hugely different, you know. Um,
0: in the same way that the north of Italy is different from the south of Italy, or is it different I, I would it? say even more so. Mm-hmm. Um, dictated by what?
1: Dictated by, I mean, you have the extremes. Japan is basically organised as an island in the north called Hokkaido, and then Kanto, the main island, and then um, these days, uh, Ryukyu, uh, um, Okinawa, the Okinawan islands, and in, in the very south, and uh, Okinawan cuisine is, is fascinating to me because it's historically Okinawa was this kingdom that was halfway between China and Japan, and the food there was a real mix of, of Chinese and Japanese cuisine, two of my absolute favourites, obviously. Mm. Um, and then late, later, when it was occupied by the the US post-World War Two, there was this huge development of kind of US-based cuisine there, so it's Western cuisine with Japanese, with Chinese, and you get things like Spam is, is a major ingredient there, And we look down on it, but I, I absolutely love it, gnocchinoan food. You know? Spam? Spam. Are you kidding me? Yeah, because it came from the, the, the American troops who had <laughs> Spam and they had uh, taco seasoning. There's a song about Spam, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and taco <laughs> rice is another hugely popular Okinawan dish, and... Um, it came from the fact that the American troops would be sent tacos as part of their rations and they would eat all, the, all of the tortillas and then they'd be left with all this leftover seasoning because the quartermasters had gotten the proportions wrong and they would sell that on to the locals um, and they would, the locals would then develop this, this rice dish with, with taco seasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Kanaan cuisine. And then obviously you go through Hiroshima and, and Fukuoka and through to... Um, Tokyo and Kanazawa and the different, you go anywhere in Japan and there is a different speciality from that region. If you want a good peach, you go to Guma. If you want a good apple, you go to um, Miyazaka or something Mm -hmm. like that. And you know, I I, when I'm traveling with Japanese people in Australia, we'll we'll go to, to to Wollongong, and someone will say, "You know, what, what's what's the famous food from Wollongong?" And I
0: go,
1: "I have no idea. Accounted <laughs> 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 meal at the RSL, maybe." I'm not sure. Um, but you, you know, you you have that that um, e- even within about fifteen or twenty kilometres in Japan, you have a regional speciality. Yeah, and. Uh, it's it makes travelling through Japan extremely fun, extremely
0: fun, extremely interesting. Um, this business about the aesthetic uh, to do with food, the, the way it looks on the plate, being you know very important, and he, it, it seems to be the visual aesthetic is of prime importance in everything. I mean, in mm. the way the streets are swept, or the way people arrange flower pots on their doorstep, or the way the girl in the shop wraps the wraps the goods yes. for you. I mean, wraps the food or wraps the thing. But do you, um, this intersection of of aesthetic and food, is it more apparent, do you think, in Japan than it is anywhere else that you've come across?
1: Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, we, we in Western cuisine worry a lot about how the food looks on the plate. And I think in Japanese cuisine, the plate itself also plays enormous part. I remember... What, the
0: colour of the plate? The colour of
1: the plate, the shape, um, you know, you have a, a very irregular uh, piece of pottery, and it will have a front and a back, and it will have a purpose yeah. to it, and, and it's, it is that shape for a reason, it is that colour for a reason.
0: What about the ceremony surrounding the presentation of food? Because that is something else again, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Um, being, being served by diminutive women <laughs> in kimono, you know, at a very low level, sitting on the almost on the floor. It's all very precise, isn't it? It's a very precise
1: culture, and it's very stratified, I would say. Um, and these days, not so much. But in, in, well, I say not so much. But compared to Australia, and and most of the West, it is still far more stratified than than, than we are. And the levels of politeness in, in language, and the levels of. Um, interpersonal exchange you know how low do you bow when, when you when you meet someone for the first time and mm-hmm. you know one of the one of the fun kind of statistics is uh, you know when you, when you leave a Japanese office or you, you end a business meeting you get followed for actually in my opinion quite an uncomfortable distance <laughs> before you get said goodbye to you know if you say if you finish a meeting in their building they might follow you these days to the elevator um sometimes out onto the street of the building, you know, down floors, and sometimes much further than that up until uh, the exit of the building meets the the true outside. And um, I was recently at a place called Hapo in in, in Tokyo and finished up a meeting there. Uh, This was was just a month or so ago. And literally the walk from the meeting room where our business was concluded to where we said goodbye was, I would say, 15 minutes long. And it, it was a little bit uncomfortable by the time we got to the end. I was like, you know, you, you, don't, have to, you don't have to walk me out because yeah. it was a long walk to get out. Um, so, and sometimes that goes down to the train station. Very and, interesting, uh, isn't it? People die in Japan by doing formal bows to each other, hitting their heads and falling onto the train tracks. <laughs> <laughs> because their business oh, meeting is finished, you know, t- you half an hour way? and they've, they've been walked <laughs> to the train station yeah, so they can get it's home. It's
0: incredible. Has Japanese influence crept into your cooking?
1: Absolutely. yeah. You know, that was um, inevitable, I suppose. Right? Inevitable. And, um, you know when I first was living moved to Japan, I was desperate to try and kind of recreate the dishes that I'd been eating in Australia, but from Japanese ingredients and it was just you know like butting your head against a, a wall and it just wouldn't happen and sometimes it, you know you'd have a nice dish it would taste fine. but it, it lacked a, an authenticity mm-hmm. for me, and it it never really felt right and then you know then I, then I went on to. Making Japanese dishes, and, and to be honest, that didn't feel right either because I had no history with those dishes and it, and it lacked authenticity in a different way. Um, and it wasn't until you know four or five years in that I started cooking food that, that was my own style of food but utilizing the ingredients that, that were around me and that were yeah. in season, and that felt a lot better.
0: Who taught you to cook? Um. <laughs>
1: Everyone. <laughs> mum, <laughs> you know, dad? Yeah, mum, dad, um, grandma. You know, I, I think there, there wasn't ever really a time, you know, by my grandmother's knee, talking over recipes or anything. You know, Sometimes I'd watch her cook and she'd yell at me for being in the way, that kind of thing. But Where
0: was that? Was that here or was somewhere else?
1: Uh, here, primarily. Yeah. I'm, I, in, in my history of my, my I grew up with my parents firstly in Malaysia and then here in Australia and then they divorced and I lived with my mother for a number of years and then when I was 14 I I sort of moved out on my own Mm. uh, because my mother moved away and um, my grandmother had a house here and she would stay six months of the year in Australia and six months of the year overseas. And and she was
0: Malaysian, was she?
1: Yeah, Malaysian Chinese.
0: So the food was Malaysian Chinese, wasn't it? Well, my mother's English,
1: so um, it was kind of... Very Malaysian for the early part of my life. Mum, my, my mother's English, but, but born in Singapore, so it's sort of Singaporean Malaysian food
0: in the very early part. Singaporean, <laughs> Malaysian, <laughs> Japanese, Chinese, Australian, Adelaide. Well, now she, now she lives in Beijing, so I get to. Does she? Your mother does.
1: Yeah, she does. She oh, for heaven's sake. Yeah, she runs an orphanage. She builds orphanages in China now. She has done so for about the last twenty years. So she uh, lives
0: really?
1: what an lives interesting there. thing to do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's So lovely.
0: food was part of the scene, it was obviously a part of the scene from very early on.
1: Yes, yeah, but all, all different kinds, and then, you know, when, when I moved in with my mother and her uh, husband, my stepfather, he's very, very English, and so it was, you know, Yorkshire pudding and, and roast beef kind of thing, and then went back out on my own, and it was two-minute noodles for a while, and then, and then my grandmother started teaching me, and, and her friends would bring me food, and I would learn a Which little more.
0: Where do you feel most comfortable? What sort of ingredients fill you with the most excitement?
1: I, I think for everyone, the food that they grew up with is the food that they always retreat to when they talk about comfort food. It's never, uh, you know, when I'm feeling down, I go out to Quay and have a degustation. It's like, you know, I, I like to have the food that my mum cooked me or, or the soup that my grandma made when I was sick. And, um, so what is
0: it for you? What is the comfort food? Is it that chicken rice
1: dish? Yeah, I mean, Hainanese chicken rice is a dish that Hainanese chicken rice. Is, <laughs> you know, I'm very comfortable with Hainanese chicken rice. Is, has a story that is, I guess, fairly similar to my own in that it came. You, if you go to Hainan Island in China, you don't find Hainanese chicken rice. It it went from it in Hainan. It's called uh, Wenchang chicken. It went with the later stages of of Chinese migration, kind of fe- fleeing communism or Japanese occupation in China in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s. A lot of the Chinese, starting from, you know, where the Japanese were invading around Nanjing, etc., cetera, um, or, or where communism was, was burgeoning, started to move. And, and Hainan Island being at the very end of at the, the very southern part of China, um, by the time they sort of got the fear of God into them and left China to go to Southeast Asia, um, there were most of the labouring jobs and, and uh, mercantile jobs were were taken and so a lot of them were in domestic service or um, uh, cooks or, or open cafes and, and um, my grandfather was one of those Hainanese that opened a, a cafe and then later he was actually a chef at the, the Japanese embassy in Malaysia. Um, which surprised the hell out of me because my grandma was also working in the embassy that I had no idea about, and then she came to visit me in Japan some sixty odd years later and started nattering away in Japanese oh, for the camera. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "How do you speak Japanese?" She speaks about nine languages, my grandmother. So,
0: what is Hainanese chicken
1: then? Chicken it, rice. Oh, yeah, I should probably explain that. Hey, um, Hainanese chicken rice is a very simple dish of poached chicken or boiled chicken. Um, where then the fat from the chicken is used to fry raw rice, which is then cooked in the stock that the... Like a risotto, sort of Yeah, that yeah. the, 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 the chicken was boiled in, and then with some simple condiments of, of chilli and, and ginger and, and spring onion and ginger and, mm. and that kind of thing. And it's, um, you know, it's a, It fits with a very modern philosophy of eating, but it's a very old dish. Well, when I say very old, it's probably... It's probably only 80, 90 years old, which is, I guess, in the scheme of food, quite a young dish. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's called Hainanese Chicken Rice. It's probably the national dish of Singapore and Malaysia who fight over it like we in New Zealand fight over padlova. Um But it came from somewhere else. And, and, you know, it came at the same time as, as my grandfather came. And who knows, he could have been one of the first people that was cooking that dish in Malaysia that then became mm-hmm. such an icon.
0: How did MasterChef
1: happen? How did MasterChef happen?
0: <laughs> how, how did it all start? What was the what was the very beginning? Um, Where were you and what happened?
1: I was in Tokyo and talking to all my school friends, you know, on email as you do when you're trying to procrastinate from work and, and um they were saying there's a show on TV, it's called MasterChef, and it's hugely popular. You should apply for it because you know I used to have them over for dinner all the time and, and have dinner parties, etc. And I was like yeah, I could do that and then filled out the application form and another well <laughs> post financial crisis uh, American companies overseas outside of America that basically shut down operations so there was there was nothing for me to do in my job I I started out on uh, projects to streamline efficiencies and you know everything became so efficient I literally had nothing to do because they shut down all the major projects and um, you know nobody well. I wasn't getting fired um, and so I applied for a transfer to the US which I got but was told to kind of just wait for a a year or so and then once the economy picked up they'd bring me up to the US. So my routine at that stage was to get to work at about 11 o'clock, go to the gym for two hours, uh, surf the internet until about 2.30 and then go home and I did that for about a year and a half uh, which Became very uninteresting after mm-hmm. a while, and so and very soul destroying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we 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 come from doing projects like buying the first ever companies that an American media corporation bought in China, and and rejigging you know mergers and acquisitions strategies for the whole company to literally non-disclosure agreements and and. Um, working out whether the signing procedure of getting something signed in Japan or, or Los Angeles was more efficient
0: mm. and, you
1: know, not particularly interesting for, for me. And so in my time waiting to go to Los Angeles, I applied for MasterChef and uh, was given an audition and, and went to the audition. Um, Where did you do that? In Sydney. So what does it consist of?
0: I mean, what is an audition?
1: Uh, the, the first audition is, you know, as you can imagine, probably more of a screen test than, than an audition itself. You cook food at home, uh, or in my case, you fly from Japan, buy ingredients at the market, and put them together kind of in the car on the way to the audition. Uh, and then you, you taste it, you get up in front of a, a, a room full of people and you taste your food, you taste someone else's food. Uh, you explain what you made, you explain what they made, whether you liked it or not. And so
0: you could make a cake or a casserole, presumably? You, you could,
1: you know, bearing in mind it had to be eaten cold. And I think, I mean, they did have a, a what's termed a food producer that did taste all the dishes. And, and so, you know, does that taste good or why did they make lamb shanks if they knew that we were going to be eating it cold? So um, what did you make? What did I make?
0: Um, Hainanese chicken rice. <laughs> <laughs> not
1: a bad dish, call, but not my favourite. I actually made a Thai miang, which is you know a a, a something wrapped in a beetle leaf, and I did kind right. of a coconut sambal with some prawns and, and
0: something like that. So they like the look of you on television, and they like the taste of your food. Then yes, what and then, then after
1: that you go to I guess what's called the second audition with the executive producers, and you sit there in front of a camera. This time, and you talk to executive producers with no cooking, just about your life and and, um, why you're doing it, what you want to to achieve in the show and in in life. And from there you go on to actually cooking for the judges and that's kind of where the the screen test element of it ends. And then it's about the food and the judges actually taste your food and they critique it and they decide whether or not you go through to the top 50 or not.
0: And then from the top 50 to the 20 to the 12 to the so on. Um, you pulled out a couple of times. <laughs> so didn't many you? times. <laughs> <laughs> How many times did you pull out? Uh,
1: well, I, the first time I would say was when I said to go to the audition. When I, when I uh, agreed to go to the audition in Adelaide, and then just didn't go. Um, and then I called back, you know, a week later, and said, "Can I go to an audition in, in Sydney instead?" Because there were cheap flights from Tokyo to Sydney that weekend. So I considered that to be the first time I pulled out, or rather not going in, and then. Mm-hmm. During Top 50, it was an extraordinary filming schedule. It was right in the middle of summer. It was end of, uh, end, start of December, um, and we were filming down in Carriage Works. And
0: uh, is that where they do it?
1: That, that's where they do the Top 50. Okay. Um, the, the the other The other segment is filmed in the, the Top 24 onwards as a, a dedicated studio in Alexandria. Yeah. But at Carriage Works, it was you know literally 45 degrees inside this building. And um, if anyone's been on set at a TV show, you'll really, you know that there's a lot of standing around doing nothing and literally just standing there, providing an out-of-focus backdrop for, for the action that's going on in front, and mm-hmm. you can be literally standing there for nine hours in, oh, in 45 degree and heat. And, and people, you wouldn't want to make pastry? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Dro- dropping like flies. People were really? rushing to hospital on an oh, hourly basis, I would say. Really? And uh, it turned out I was one of those. and and. Um,
0: Really? Uh, yeah, 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 and the
1: doctor said that I was not allowed to go back on set, and I was told that if I do go back, if I don't go back on set, then I would be eliminated. And I was like, well, really, that's fine with me. So I just sat in my hotel room and ordered room service and, and uh, waited for the call to tell me that I was eliminated, and it didn't come. Uh, and I called up in the afternoon and said, you know, when do I need to check out of my hotel because I need to book a flight back to Japan? And they said, actually, we decided because there were so many people were. Uh, uh, in hospital <laughs> that will we'll delay filming for three days and you can just stay in the hotel over the weekend and then come back on Monday. And so I turned up on Monday morning saying I'm going to tell them that I kind of need to get back home and, and I'm, I'm going to pull out, but I, then in the very first challenge on Monday morning I got into the top
0: 24. So was it exciting? It, it was exciting.
1: Um, definitely exciting. It's nice to be chosen for something like that. You know, yeah. with, when you're seeing all these people bawling their eyes out because they've been sent home or whatever, and you're the guy going, "Well, I actually wanted to go home, but I just got into the top 24," you, can't, you have to you have to um, be a little bit excited by it. Um,
0: Was your family involved at all? Did they? Well, then then we
1: have essentially two weeks over um, uh, not even but Christmas, sort of from early December through to mid December, to sort your life out. To be away for up to one you, year. Quit your, What really? Yeah, it takes it takes about a year. People to film quit the their show. jobs, don't they? Did you, you quit
0: the job well, in Tokyo for this?
1: Well, that was the decision to make. You know, oh. um, do you give up a career that you worked very hard for for a one in twenty-four shot at a quarter of your salary um, on a reality TV show? Uh, and in in any way. That you cut it, it doesn't make any sense to do. So when I got back to Tokyo, I talked to her with my family, I talked to her with my boss, and basically said, you know, this is ridiculous. It was, it was fun. I got to, you know, wave the camera a little bit in the top 50, but I'll just get back to work. And then got back to work and realised that there was no work, and um, I was just sitting around waiting for for LA to happen. Mm. And um, uh, I just sort of decided, you know. I, it, it, if the choice is staying and, and sitting here doing nothing for another six months, literally only to preserve the benefits that the company gives you when you transfer, rather than leave the company, mm-hmm. it just makes more sense to, to go and do something fun for a while and then go to Los Angeles. That's like what that. you did.
0: So that's what I did. Were you surprised to win?
1: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I was definitely. Um, I think when you go through the process of that, that master of competition, there's, it, it, it's fascinating. You know, I'm not I'm, I'm not generally the type of person that firstly enters a reality TV competition or um, cries when someone tells me my food's no good, or or tells me that actually I never cried when when they said my food wasn't good. I only cried when they said it was good, which is I think even worse. <laughs> um, but it's it's a really funny emotional process going through that because you go into a house with a bunch of strangers and there's no television, there's no newspapers, there's no mobile phones, computers, etc.
0: So you don't know what's going on in the world?
1: No, no, you don't. And more than that, you don't get any outside perspectives. You know, you come home from a busy day at the office and you think, you know, you know, wasn't that bad, and you, you get you get that chance to kind of put everything in perspective. But when you're in that deep immersion of a reality TV show, there is no perspective. You know, mm-hmm. people people cry over an overcooked scallop because that's the only thing in their lives. And it, it reminds me of you know that part of if you've seen the movie Cast Away, yes. where uh, Tom Hanks is, is screaming out Wilson and chasing after his volleyball that's floating away. You know. Um, it, it's kind of like that. You lose that perspective of what's important and what isn't.
0: Is the food good? Do, do people do good food Absolutely. on
1: Yeah, you know, sometimes the, the food is not as good as, as it is made out to be, mm. but sometimes it's better.
0: Did you find that there were um, gaps in your, your cooking knowledge? Um, I'm just wondering if they ever asked you to do something that you... That really wasn't something that you... I'm just wondering because you've talked about the the Asian background and the intensely Anglo background mm-hmm. in your cooking, but we haven't talked about French influence or Italian influence or other influence from Europe in your cooking.
1: Yeah, uh, the, there were huge gaps in my knowledge and it wasn't really from... You know, I. I've, tend to approach things fairly academically, and so I have a fairly good knowledge of French or Italian or Swiss or whatever cuisines are are there, but like most people, I don't really cook something that I'm not interested in, and I don't eat a lot of cake, so I've literally never had baked a cake in my life before MasterChef. But you
0: had to on MasterChef, did you?
1: Yeah, well, in Japan, Japanese kitchens don't have ovens, so I didn't have an oven for seven years, so I hadn't cooked anything in an oven the last uh, the seven years before Jeppe, uh, before Masterchef, and, yeah. but the, the, the great thing about the show is you get this, this really steep learning curve and it's not really about who's the best cook, it's who learns the most because the, at, at the end of the competition, no matter who's there or even literally six weeks into the competition, the worst cook in the competition is better than the best cook at the start. So the, worst the worst cook after a few months in a competition is better really? than the best cook at it So it's start. a, a learning curve. An there. enormous learning curve. Yeah. Callum, who was the runner-up, I think he made two ice creams every night for about four months just to, to in perfect. The, in the house. In the house.
0: So you can, you've got access to the kitchen. Yeah, you've got house. access
1: to the kitchens there. You've got unlimited ingredients. You can order any outside ingredients you want. And, and, and you practice. The, the only books that they have in the, in the whole place are just cookbooks.
0: There's a whole library of about 300 cookbooks that you just pour through. It's mm. sort of like a refined torture in a way. Isn't it? Well, if you like cooking, it's actually a lot of
1: fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I loved it. You know, you get it's funny the the dinners in the master chef house. When we first got in there, everyone was like, oh, I want to show you my stuff. And you had 24 people in the kitchen on the first night, and then it goes through from there to sometimes you have six people in the kitchen, and after about three months you have arguments over who's going to cook because nobody wants to cook (laughs) and then after you know six months you've learnt the ropes and you know that if you stay on set longer than after 9 p.m they have to order takeaway for you so you're deliberately delaying make sure the cars pick you up after nine so you can have pizza when you get home
0: did you make friends
1: yeah of course of course um i think one of the, the really great things about MasterChef, as a reality TV show, is not that adversarial kind of competition. Mm. Um, you That's don't, what I like about it too. Yeah, people you simply support gain it. anything by somebody doing badly. Mm. Um, uh, even if you escape elimination by someone doing worse than you, you're judged by the same people every time. And if you've made a bad dish, you made a bad dish. And mm. It's inevitable that one day you will go home from doing that.
0: How did it change your life then?
1: Wow. Uh, Enormously is the short answer. Um, it's hard to imagine, you know. If if you love food, you, you always think, wouldn't it be amazing to to write a cookbook or to have your own cooking show or to do all these kind of things in food? And then, you know, I was on stage at the the Good Food and Wine Show in Johannesburg a couple of weeks ago with Gordon Ramsay. I'm, I was just there thinking, you know, you know, I'm, this is not me. I'm am a lawyer from mm. <laughs> from Adelaide and. and I don't usually. I, people like me don't get to do this kind of thing, but mm. anyway, I, I, couldn't be, I couldn't be more grateful for the opportunities. So, and
0: you're going to open a restaurant.
1: That's the plan, um, and uh, it's it, it's difficult because again, anyone who, who loves food has dreamed of opening a restaurant, but you have to have this commercial mind about it as well, and you have to identify that even though something may be so emotionally appealing if it's commercially not right it's not you're not going to have the chance to do that and yeah. it's the same thing in in, in all creative endeavours I think you 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 by necessity you have to put a lot of emotion into it but restaurants I think more so than, than mm-hmm. you know many other disciplines that architecture may be accepted um has a very very tight commercial bottom line you know Statistically, in Australia, the average profit margin of a restaurant is three percent. Which, you know, Mark Best, the, the owner owner uh, and chef at Mark on, on Crown Street, tweeted the other day: um, We just had a no show for five people. We're losing money tonight. And that that's how tight it is. That is, yeah. you know, a three hand restaurant, world renowned. Whoa. He had five people that didn't come in on a night, and he's lost money. Now that that's how tight the industry is. Yeah. And so. You know, is this the
0: time to be opening a restaurant? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, I mean, there's restaurants and there's restaurants. Of it might, course might come, yeah. You know, you have you have this this trend with a lot of restaurateurs these days of, I guess in the, the fashion industry it's called a diffusion line,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where you have your high fashion line that that is very expensive and people buy when they want to do certain things, and then you have the high street line that that, that kind of is not as expensive to manufacture and is not as expensive to to upkeep but but has the same brand and the same soul of uh, the original product
0: will your restaurant be high-end like tetsuya or will it be
1: no it won't um it, it it's not really my style of food you know mm-hmm. i i i like I, I don't think something has to be high-end to taste good um and i think a lot of my, my roots are in Southeast Asian cuisine, and, mm-hmm. and you have dishes there that that don't, to me, taste any worse than a, a three, four hundred dollar degustation menu. But it costs two dollars or one dollar on the street, and I, I don't discriminate on that. You know, I, I appreciate the, the degustation menu for its creativity and its art, artistic ability, but. If I just want to go and, and eat and drink and have a good time with friends, I want mm. to have a different experience. To yeah, have, most of the time.
0: Somebody in the audience did have a question before we even started. Where are you? Do, because I I'd love you to ask questions if you have them. If you anybody. I mean, where would you start the restaurant?
1: Uh, well, we've been we've been negotiating on a site in Surrey Hills for literally six months now, and um, it shouldn't be as hard as it is, but unfortunately it is. But uh, we have, me and my business partners, we have a bar opening in Tokyo next month, um, or, or maybe December now. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Uh, and then straight after that we'll get on to the restaurant in Sydney in earnest, because my, my business partners are um, based in Tokyo, very old well friends of mine. Matt used to be the first head chef at Tetsu, he was back when it was in Roselle, um, and he and Nathan and, and my other friend Eddie have opened their restaurant in Tokyo uh, probably about three or four years ago. And it's, it's absolutely fantastic. It's it's one of, well, I would say it is the go-to place in Tokyo, and has been for the last two or three years. But they're Aussies, and they want to come back to Australia. And, and me me winning master for moving back to Australia at this time has been quite opportune. So mm-hmm. um, we'll we'll open in Sydney hopefully mid of next year. Yeah.
0: Did you have a question? Yeah. No. Is it? That... Mm-hmm. Yeah love the food in Tokyo, and uh, the presentation is unbelievable, but
1: is that the same all around in Japan, or is it just in the cities that the presentation is so incredibly beautiful? Oh, no, no, the the, the rural cuisines in Japan are, um, in some ways, without the, that sort of time pressure and the commercial pressure, uh, uh, even more beautiful than, than what are in the cities quite often. Um, You don't get a lot of the high-end cuisine that you get in Tokyo or Kyoto or Osaka, but um, the thing that I think differs between a lot of places in Japan and a lot of places in Australia is that even if it is a very cheap, very low-end restaurant in Japan, there'll be an extraordinary amount of pride in what's served. And so even if you are having a meal for 5 or $6, you won't have something that hasn't had the requisite amount of care put into it. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, starts and ends with the presentation. So. Mm-hmm. And your
0: learning of Japanese food,
1: you said it was in Japan. but Did yes. you have any one in the family teaching you Japanese food or did you just pick it up out of the room? Um, I would go to people's houses. My fiance is also Japanese uh, and she's taught me a lot and her family has yeah. taught me a lot. Um, but before we were together, um, I used to go to uh, my secretary's house or um, go to a restaurant and uh, when I had enough kind of rudimentary Japanese to ask questions of the waiter, it, w- it was fantastic because they they say, oh, if you're really interested and do you want to come in and, and chat to the chef? And so I would go back into a lot of kitchens mm, and things. Fantastic. Um, and, and Japanese kitchens are very different from you know, that, that, that French brigade kitchen where you've got the general, the head chef kind of screaming at everyone and everyone rushing around and everyone in fear. Japanese kitchens are much, much more calm and much, much more evenly paced, I think. So they, they don't mind that kind of thing quite often. Um, and a lot of Japanese cuisine also, what we don't have a lot of in Australia is counter-seating where you sit at a counter and the chef Mm. is preparing it right in front of you. And the most important part of of that style of eating is the dialogue with the chef. And it's not just, what do you want to eat next? It's, you know, if you're interested, it's unfortunate that most of the great chefs in Japan only speak Japanese because it's such an amazing experience to sit across there from a sushi chef. And he'll tell you, you know, what's best today, why it's best, know what the what the wind conditions were like out on the water and so you choose this fish over that fish and um, how you prepare it and, and why you prepare it it's, it's often not the how and 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 when of food because that's that's you can read that out of a book but the, the why of why you make something is I think a lot more fascinating mm.
0: More, it is. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, it's 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 definitely the plan. Uh, open kitchens or semi-open kitchens are very popular these days, but um, I, I don't think it's enough just to look into it. You know, an open kitchen is nice as soon as you walk into a restaurant, but then you know it's a bit loud. It's a little bit kind of you, you lose. You don't want to watch the chef doing what he's doing after about five seconds unless you're actually interacting with it. And so I think that interaction is is very important.
0: Mm.
1: <laughs> the, the big secret that no-one in my chef will tell you is that cooking is actually extremely, extremely easy. You know, um, Thomas, cooking is? Absolutely. Oh. Oh no, Thomas, Thomas Keller from, from French Laundry, is like, there, there's nothing special about putting a piece of meat into a pan and cooking it until it's right or, or whipping up an egg. Or, or anyone can do these things. It's just moving your arm in a certain way. You know, there's no specific technique that, that is required to get that right. A lot of what we go out to restaurants for is the thought process that's gone before that. The prep, the, the prep is, is, is the best time in the kitchen because it's where the creativity happens. You know, service is the adrenaline rush and the buzz, but the the menu design, the prep, the post-service, debrief, they're all such important parts of working in the kitchen. Um, and that's where the difficulty is. You know, Peter Gilmore's Snow Egg that was in the finale of MasterChef is... Uh, divine. And it's, a, it's an amazing dish, but when you break it down into its elements, it's a, it's a twill, it's an ice cream, it's a meringue, it's a, it's a custard, it's a, <laughs> uh, You love it, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> and it's a granita, you know, these are things that literally everyone in this room can make with, yeah, with, with God, 30 yeah. minutes of, <laughs> of instruction, literally, you know, everyone can make an ice cream, everyone can make a custard, everyone can make a, uh, a meringue, everyone can make a granita, but the genius comes yeah. in putting that all together, you know? That's not. That's something that not everyone can do.
0: Mm. You, remind me of, <laughs> you remind me of Fred Hollows, the eye surgeon, who said to me once, I can teach you to take a cataract out in <laughs> half an hour. eye oh, <laughs> surgery is so same. And fun. I said, I don't want to learn it. But he, 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 he swore anybody could learn how to do it. Wow. Yeah. Any more questions at this point? Uh, yes. I've, I've not seen your book yet, but one of the things that concerns
1: me about why cooking is that is the number of the ingredients they have. I live in a very small apartment. Yeah. I have the Saving recipes for some time until I had time to cook them. I look at them recently, and I need a, a warehouse of sources and spices to cook them. Yeah. And yeah. In, mean, in, in your book, how many ingredients, like sources and spices, and condiments do you use? Are you in the you know you, you have hundreds,
0: thousands,
1: you I have a very big pantry I mean, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie about that. Um, But there's kind of two schools of thought to that. Part of it is we're into this kind of mode of simplicity and ease of cookery. Wish (laughs) you would. And and part of the fun, you know, a restaurant doesn't create a great meal by taking the easiest path to to get there. Um, That said, there are ways to make food that is very simple and very easy. um, Because, as I said, cooking is not a difficult process. Um, my current book is probably not for you. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, it's not—it's not a difficult book, but it, it, it does require you to go not just to Cold and Woolworths, but maybe to an Asian grocery or something like that. Well, I mean, if, if you're willing to do that, I mean, it's, they're not dishes that are, you know, esoteric in any way. They're, they're simple dishes that I cook at home. Um, the big. Issue that my publisher has with it is that it doesn't look simple. So when you look at a dish, you know you can be the people buy cookbooks based on three photos and they cook one recipe from the book. That that's that's the way it is across the industry, And, and I think you'd be lucky if someone cooks one recipe from a book. You know, I'm I'm very happy in my book with my book. The feedback that I get is people cook five or six things or. You know, some people have even cooked the book from start to finish and cooked every single thing in the book, which is 106 mm-hmm. recipes, which, you know, for someone to go out of their way to do that is, you know, hugely gratifying for me. Um, but my publisher was, I guess, not quite as enamoured. But, I mean, they love the book. They absolutely love the book, but they, 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 what they wanted was a book that... The books that sell these days are Four Ingredients or 30-Minute Meals from Jamie Oliver. They, mm-hmm. they sell... Mm-hmm hundreds of thousands of copies Um, because that's kind of this and in my opinion it's it's a false mentality that we've got it into. There is no such thing as a 30 minute meal but we've decided that the way that we cook these days is we come home with a shopping bag, we put it on the bench and then within 15 or 30 minutes we want to have a meal on on a plate and to me that's kind of like going into a restaurant and saying give me the steak and chips and then the chef going out the back and saying all right, somebody peel some potatoes. We've got a steak and chips order. You know, the, the chips are there. They're, they're, there's prep done, and and kitchen craft is something that it's lacking a lot in mm-hmm. in the way we approach food. And when you approach something from a 30-minute meal perspective, all it really is doing is, is is cutting the wrong corners rather than the right ones. You know, when I when I was a lawyer, I would cook three meals a day, you know, every day, and it would take me probably six or seven minutes from coming home to, to having dinner ready. And it's all about the preparation beforehand. So I'd spend, you know, an hour on a Sunday chopping a veg- chopping up some vegetables and putting it in the fridge or uh, marinate some meat and then freeze that individually. And that was kind of how my mise en place or my craft worked in, in my kitchen at that stage. Um, but, you know, I, I don't really subscribe to the whole take something out of a pack and, and 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 cook it straight away kind of. Mentality. So, you know, I, I spend 15 minutes on a Sunday making a teriyaki place and then teriyaki chicken is literally a five-minute dish after that and you can do that five nights a week. But um, so that's kind of, that's the focus of my next book, actually, the one I'm working on at the moment, which is uh, more of an after-work cookbook because that's kind of what I've experienced. You know, there's not a lot of cookbook writers out there that that have the, the background of working in a corporate environment and, and knowing what it's like to come home and go, well, you yeah, know, what's what's for dinner. Yeah, um yeah. if I rephrase my question then, mm. roughly what percent of the recipes in your book could only cook with say
0: fifteen versions 5-7 the um,
1: the book has a picture glossary in the back, um, that's supposed to be a guide for uh, People going to an Asian grocery for the first time and say, rather than because I mean that I didn't know the, the names of half of the sauces and the things that I used. It was kind of whatever the one with the yellow top is or the, the red top. Or but the, the other thing body. that
0: comes in here, I'm with you. The other thing that comes in here is that I'm forever throwing out things yes, because yeah, I haven't yeah. used all the turmeric. Yeah. You know, I've used that much because yeah. I made a recipe three weeks ago that said that much turmeric, and then the turmeric sits there for another six months and then it's used by it, chuck it out. Yeah. You know.
1: On a regular basis, I would use six ingredients, I would say.
0: Somebody should start a line, and my, my, one of my local shops is mm. doing it, of tiny quantities yeah. of things, ti- little tiny <laughs> plastic containers with one nutmeg. You know? Mm. Fantastic. I, I think it's... I, I should Japanese a the cuisine for, for you, to be
1: honest. Um, Japanese cuisine, I think, is the thing for you, because um, literally... 75% of the dishes in, in all of Japanese cuisine are permutations of sake, mirin, sugar and soy sauce. And, and in different quantities that becomes a yakitori glaze or a teriyaki or um, add miso and, and dashi broth to that and you've got thousands of dishes. And, and I would probably have those four plus Shaoxing one when I'm doing Chinese food, fish sauce and uh, oyster sauce. And literally, that's probably the... the I checked seven out some
0: sauce the other day. Always.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have the to seven things it. that I use on, on a regular basis. Yeah.
0: Okay. Thanks for the questions. Thank you for listening. And I, is it, I don't think it's a secret that at Christmas time you're getting married in Tokyo. In April, actually. In April. Yeah. yeah. One of those beautiful traditional Japanese weddings, she'll be in the kumano, in the kimono, yes, she? Yes, yes. If you've ever seen those in Tokyo, you know, in the, those parks in Tokyo, those beautiful brides <laughs> with this extraordinary headdress, that, that'll yes, be happening. Yeah, have well, I hope it all goes very well, and thank you very much, Adam. Thanks would very you much. join me?